The court. La cour. Please be seated. In the case of His Majesty the King against Private DT Vu, for the appellant, His Majesty the King, Carl La Charité, Dominique Martin, for the respondent, Private DT Vu, Francesca Ferguson, and Nural Ahmed. Please note that there is a publication ban in this matter pursuant to section 271 and 486.4 of the criminal code and section 179 and 130 of the National Defense Act. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I'm here today to discuss two errors of law that is, the failure to assess the evidence cumulatively, the speculation, as well as an improper assessment of the mens rea. This appeal is about how the evidence was treated. In GMH, this court recognized it is an error of law not to assess the evidence cumulatively, and specifically in JF, this court noted that capacity to consent is a cumulative assessment. Practically speaking, a cumulative assessment is a contextual assessment. It is a holistic assessment of all the evidence. In this case, there are at least two indicators. The military judge did not conduct such an assessment. One, in his treatment of the video, and second, in his credibility assessment of the witnesses. Both were conducted in isolation from the uncontested evidence and from the accused's own evidence. On the video, what may have led the Court of Appeal in error is that the military judge notes at paragraph 88, that is before he actually conducts his analysis, some of the uncontested evidence. This includes the fact that the complainant became so intoxicated, she had to be brought back to her room. She had to be dragged on the way to her room and she had to be put on her bed. That her voice is faint and that she slurs her words on the video and mumbles incomprehensible words at times. That she was unconscious at the end of the sexual act when it was interrupted and that she does not recall the key events. But the military judge does not meaningfully use that listed evidence when he approaches the video as if the video is determinative in and of itself of subjective consent. He pushes aside most of it at paragraph 90 when he notes, the uncontested evidence of impairment can be tempered with. This despite the fact that this evidence is acknowledged by the accused's own evidence in addition to being corroborated by two witnesses. The contextual assessment that the military judge conducts is limited to tempering the evidence and to a general statement found at paragraph 96 of his reasons, where he notes that, of course, the complainant showed the indicia of impairment referred above, but the indicia of impairment he refers above at this point is the one he tempered with earlier. It is not the uncontested evidence. And the military judge never asked himself if the uncontested evidence and the accused's own evidence corroborates the inferences he makes from the video. The fact the evidence is listed outside of the video is insufficient. GMH and GF do not stand for the proposition that the evidence needs to be listed somewhere in a decision. Rather, it establishes that it needs to be assessed holistically. It should be clear to trial judges that listing the evidence is not enough. It should also be clear to trial judges and appellate courts that a reference by incorporation, such as the one that we find at paragraph 96, is insufficient to protect uh, an analysis from review. This is not the type of cumulative assessment contemplated by GMH and JF. In this case, the military judge had at a minimum to explain how his findings fit with the uncontested and corroborated evidence. This includes the evidence from the, from the accused that the complainant was unconscious when she was put now, in her bed. You know, in, uh, I've been hearing appeals for a long time, and one of the things that I always think about, and maybe it's not as precise as Justice Cromwell put it in uh, GMH, was that if you're going to say that a trial judge has failed to take into account in, a, in an overall way the evidence, 
it should be very clear. It's like it's so fragmented that it just, the pieces are never put together. Or it's so incomplete that there are gaps. If it takes a long time to explain why you think that, he, that the trial judge failed to take things into account cumulatively, it looks to me a lot like you're asking us to reweigh the evidence and set aside the verdict on the basis of an unreasonable acquittal, which is not available at law. Justice Rule, you are perfectly correct. This is, this is not available at law, but this is not what this case is about. This is about how the evidence was treated. Of course, when the evidence is not assessed cumulatively, when the evidence is not assessed contextually, once we reconsider that evidence, it leads to a reweighing of the evidence eventually in the mind of the, of the person that you assess it. But the issue is not the weighing of the evidence, it's how it is treated to begin with. And in this case, of course, the military judge made the analysis somewhat complicated and we understand how the Court of Appeal was led, the majority was led into error because he does list that evidence elsewhere in the decision and then he makes references to it but never brings it together, never assesses it together in addition to listing that evidence, but some of it... maybe he has assessed it together by focusing on part of it. That, that's the problem I have with your argument, is that if we say it's cumulative and he has referred to all of the rele relevant evidence and then just places more weight on some of it than others, how can we say that the problem is in not... Uh, looking at the evidence as a whole. He's looked at a whole, he can accept some part or, or none, and he can weigh it in the, uh, within the confines of law in the way uh, that he, he thinks is persuasive. So... To that, Justice Martin, I would answer that to begin with, he does not look at all of the evidence when he does review the evidence. He does review some of the witnesses' evidence, and we'll get to that shortly. But if we look at the accused's own statement, he, the military judge dedicates all but three lines to this long transcript in his review of the evidence. So his assessment of the evidence to begin with is, is, is somewhat incomplete. So that, that sets the stage to the failure to assess it cumulatively, and it sets the stage for his tunnel vision on the video afterwards. Well, we have a judgment from a trial court of 153 paragraphs that the Court of Appeal said is a meticulous examination of the law and an accurate statement of the law. He goes through each of the witnesses. He breaks down the video into uh, detailed segments. Admittedly, he doesn't... Uh, the. the uh, the uh, transcript isn't an exhibit, and it probably should have been. It should have been, as the Court of Appeal said. But reading the reasons as a whole, you might, one might niggle here or there, but reading it as a whole, there is no doubt about the path of reasoning of the trial judge when I read the reasons. And putting aside the issues that the Court of Appeal said involve speculation uh, and uh, that don't amount to material, material uh, uh, errors, at the end of the day. But reading the reasons as a whole, can there be any doubt about the trial judge's reasoning path uh, in this case? You say, you say there is. I, I'd like to understand what that is because um, he highlights at paragraph 89, as you point out, the factors that are indicative of capacity to consent. And um, I'm trying to understand why it wasn't open to him to, in light of what he'd set out, to, to conclude as he did. So Justice General, to begin, the Court of Appeal is right. The review of the evidence is, is proper. Uh, the review of the law is proper, the, the, what is done by the military judge. But the issue is not whether or not the review of the law was proper. The issue in this case is whether or not the evidence was assessed contextually. Now, the military judge, as we mentioned... What does that, what does that mean, assessed contextually? I know exactly why he uh, found each of the non-accused uh, witnesses to be unreliable. I know exactly because it's set out in his reasons. What do you mean assessing it contextually? I also think I understand his reasoning path. Um, he, he thought there were, uh, not only on the basis of the video, but having discounted the other evidence in view of its unreliability, looking primarily at the video, uh, which is the incident, he found there were indicators of consent. What's wrong with that analysis? 
two things are wrong with that analysis, just as general. To begin with, the video assessment in and of itself was piecemeal. When the military judge mentioned that he stopped it unaccountable amount of times and looked at it partially in some of the voices and, and, and tries to identify some of the words that are said, this leads him to a piecemeal assessment of the video in and of itself. But in terms of the witnesses, what happens is that when the military judge does the credibility review of those witnesses, he does not do a cumulative assessment. Point in case, at the end of each of the credibility assessment of Aviator, LeBlanc, and Stennis, paragraph 80 and 81, 81, he mentions twice that he will not believe their evidence unless it is corroborated by other evidence. This statement in and of itself indicates that when the military judge reviewed their evidence, he was not considering it contextually with the other evidence. And that explains why he never makes any findings as to their corroborated evidence on the record when he looks at them, when he assesses their credibility. The military judge's concern with the credibility of the two witnesses that he, he refused to consider the evidence is on collateral matters. It is not on the live issues that is before the court. But what about um, Vu's statement to the police? Did the trial judge appropriately consider that when he was looking at the issue of incapacity? No, Justice Obansawin, he did not. So at the outset, as I mentioned earlier, he dedicates all but three lines to the witness, uh, the accused statement to the military police when he does review the evidence. And then afterwards, when he does an analysis, when he actually reviews the evidence that is on, on the record, he omits some of the key statements by the accused that is material and probative in this case. He omits the fact, he, d he does not reconcile the fact that the accused mentioned that the witness was barely awake w at the outset when she provided those answers, that her eyes were, were, were not fully awake, barely awake. He, do he does not reconcile the fact that the accused just does not recall the two, three minutes portion of time that led to her being answering those questions. He recalls what took place before, he recalls what takes place after, but does not recall that, that, that span of time that is missing. And he doesn't even take into proper consideration that the accused caution statement is replete with acknowledgement that the complainant was unconscious when the sexual act was interrupted. But also, wasn't there the issue with, he says, she, I think, was a 9 on 10 incapacitated and I, or drunk, basically, and I was an 8 on 10. Wasn't that, that wasn't even considered either, was it? You are correct, Justice Obansawin. So the military judge takes the time to refer to the complainant's own assessment, being an 8 out of 10, up to the point where she loses capacity to recall what occurred. But the accused's own assessment was that she was a nan closer to 10. And that's, that's not even mentioned in that analysis when it's there. So there's a lot of elements that is, that is missing, a lot of material and probative elements on the live issue of incapacity that is missing in his assessment. And again, the fact that it, you can find it piecemeal at different places in the decision is insufficient. That listing the evidence in the decision is not enough. The evidence needs to be assessed contextually. The, the key issue needs to be reconciled. The, the inferences that the judge makes from the video need to be reconciled with the conflicting evidence that arise from the accused's own statement. GF tells us that capacity is a cumulative assessment. And MJ tells us that credibility and reliability is, has to be assessed contextually. And now, so the witness's testimony had to be assessed contextually as well. And it did not. The military judge did not assess their evidence contextually. MJ, a case referred to in our factum from the Ontario Court of Appeal, citing the British Columbia Court of Appeal, tells us at paragraph 28 that a reviewing court must be satisfied that a credibility assessment was done cumulatively in light of all the evidence. In other words, the, court, the Ontario Court of Appeal tells us that a lower tribunal cannot shield himself from appellate review if the credibility assessment done of a witnesses was not done in light of all the evidence. This proposition, we say, should be clear to trial judges, and this proposition was not followed in this case because the assessment of the witnesses was not cumulative, particularly when the accused's own evidence supports the credibility of the witnesses, such as in this case. 
Here, the credibility of LeBlanc and Stanutz was both corroborated by the accused's own evidence. And as such, the credibility assessment of the military judge does not command difference. As I mentioned earlier, point in case, paragraph 80 and 81, the military judge notes that unless the evidence is corroborated, he will not believe any of it. But later in his decision, we never see a reassessment of the evidence in light of the corroborated evidence elsewhere in the decision. LeBlanc testified that the, the complainant was unconscious when she was put to bed. Stanutz testified to the same. She further testified that she was unconscious when the sexual act was interrupted. The accused's own evidence is that the complainant was dragged to her room, that she had to be put to bed, and that she was unconscious when the sexual act was interrupted. The accused's caution statement is replete with acknowledgement that the complainant was unconscious when the sexual act was interrupted. It was incumbent on the military judge to assess it cumulatively, to reconcile but the But in fairness, he says he only uh, understood that after the fact, right? I beg your pardon, just he, In fairness, he said he only understood that after the fact. Had he said, I knew she was asleep or unconscious during the act, it would be, this would be a different case. But he said it was only when I, when I looked up, essentially, that I realized that, right? That's after the fact. That's correct, Justice So General. that's a pretty but important fact, it seems to when me. When we are at the actus reus analysis stage, the fact that the accused mentions, when I looked up, while I'm performing the sexual act on the complainant, she was unconscious. At the actus rea stage, that brings the analysis to the second part of the analysis on the mens rea. And, and, and that's the, the following point I will make. But as far as the actus rea is concerned, the accused acknowledgement, whether or not he only noticed it when he was interrupted, he does acknowledge that she was unconscious at that point and that crystallizes, that crystallizes the actus reus. Can I just ask you, so the respondent is going to argue that moral judgment doesn't have a place in this case. What's your response to that? Moral judgment, Justice Obansawin, does, doesn't have place in, in this case. But the concern with the statement made by the Court of Appeal and the military judge, the fact that they're discussed by what they saw we have to remember that there is no, not, nothing reprehensible or nothing disgusting with having sexual interaction with uh, an intoxicated person in Canada. There's nothing wrong with it. But it becomes reprehensible when that takes place and we take advantage of someone because of their incapacity. And this is a conflicting portion in both of these decisions. It shouldn't have triggered any uh, negative emotions from the trial judge or the majority of the Court of Appeal if what they assessed and what they looked at was something permissible at law. At this stage, I will move to the speculation. Can I, can I just, I guess what's troubling me about your submissions is you're, you're saying that the military judge did not look at the evidence as a whole. But your submissions are not looking at the reasons of the military judge as a whole. It's a piecemeal. At this paragraph, he only lists it. At this paragraph, he doesn't come back and, and consider it. But he does make findings about all of those factors. And I guess I'm, I'm struggling to understand why, um, I mean, G, GF says you look at the evidence cumulatively but it also says you look at the reasons <clears throat> as a whole. And so that's what I'm really struggling with. That there's a tension in your submissions. Look at all of the evidence, but we're going to parse the reasons of the, of the military judge. Justice Karakadzanis, if the submissions appear this way, it, it may just be that because the evidence was not assessed cumulatively, it led to some degree when we look at, at the decision to some inconsistent findings as well. But this is not an inconsistent finding appeal because the issue is not the fact that the findings are inconsistent per se throughout. It's the fact that the evidence was not assessed cumulatively. The military judge, as I mentioned, if the fact that he reviews some of the evidence, but then when he assess capacity, he does not look at the conflicting evidence together. And that is the problem. How, how do we know he doesn't look at it? Is there something about it that's 
I, I guess it comes back to this idea, you're saying there's something about it that's unreasonable, uh, about his findings that are unreasonable. It, there's no magic formula that a trial judge needs to use. So I guess I'm just struggling with your submission that he did not consider the evidence as a whole. When I read the reasons, here's a trial judge who's really trying to come to terms with all of the, the, the evidence and really trying to satisfy himself whether the evidence is established in capacity beyond a reasonable doubt. And so I, I just thought I would let you know what is troubling me, so if you can, if there's anything further you can say, um, I, now to, would be the time. To this, Justice Karakadzainis, I would refer back to paragraph 90 and 96 of the trial judge's reason, where he does mention that the indicia of impairment mentioned above, when he does review the evidence, and again, he does not review all of the probative evidence as to incapacity there, but the one that he does refer to, because he excludes a lot of the accused's own evidence in that portion, can be tempered with. There's no explanation and no logic as to why that evidence can be tempered with. He's not looking at the evidence and weighing the evidence in light of the video. At the outset, he says that that evidence can be tempered with, and with, with that tempered evidence in his mind, then he, start, he begins his analysis of the video. Then he does his, his assessment of the video, and later on he mentions that um, he recognized that the complainant showed the indicia of impairments referred above. But as I mentioned, the indicia at paragraph 96, but when he mentions that at paragraph 96, again, in his mind, what he's considering at that point is the indicia of impairment that he's just tempered with at paragraph 90. He has a, a, an oblique view of the evidence when he looks at the video. And that explains why, when he assesses the video, we never see a reconciliation. We never see the judge actually looking at the, it's so material to the fact that the accused mentions she was barely awake when she provided those answers at the outset, that she was unconscious few minutes before she provided those answers, and that, that she fell unconscious again during the sexual act. Her incapacity was such that she was unconscious two, three minutes before the beginning. She provides slurred, mumble, and incomprehensible answers at time during the sexual act. We don't see the complainant's face on the video recording, which is problematic because we don't know if she's awake or not at that point. Not problematic, well. But, and she's so incapacitated that within five minutes of, of sexual interaction, despite being sexually stimulated, she falls unconscious again. And while you use the word unconscious, do you mean asleep? And that Chief Justice wrote, the distinction between unconscious and sleep can be drawn. Uh, the point is, she's, she's non-responsive at that point. Uh, whether or not she has the capacity to dream or, or, or not at that specific point, and we were not going to, I think is immaterial uh, to that point. But also, the military judge displaces the fact that the complainant, when she's asleep or unconscious, when a sexual act was interrupted, makes again the same vocalizations separated by silences that are heard during the video. And this at a point where it is known she is unconscious or sleeping. And, and the judge does not reconcile the fact that there is for certainty evidence that she was making vocalizations while asleep with the vocalizations and the periods of silence heard in the video. So we, it, it, although the actus is crystallized, it, it just increases uh, the severity of the actus reus. But isn't that, counsel, a weighing exercise the, the trial judge was entitled to, uh, to make? That is, that considering the video evidence that might have negative connotations with the evidence that might raise doubts about capacity. So if you're looking at this from another perspective, is the assessment of the trial judge here a cumulative exercise the product of which was there were too many uncertain factors in order to base a beyond reasonable doubt verdict. For example, the evidence of the aviators, the evidence of the third attendee at the party. The trial judge articulated reasons why he felt the evidence was unreliable in two cases and not credible in the third. Is that the 
that, that using that as a basis for building a case of beyond reasonable doubt, the trial judge felt had dangers and articulated why. Of course, trial judges are entitled to weigh the evidence. The point being that they can weigh the evidence once they've considered all of the evidence contextually, cumulatively. And in this point, even with the witnesses, their evidence, as mentioned earlier, was not considered cumulatively. So the fact that the military judge does not use that evidence, including their evidence as to what took place when the sexual act was interrupted, does not reconcile their evidence, does not acknowledge that the witnesses corroborates the accused's own statement at that point. And then that leads the military judge to speculation. Speculation that the complainant may have been feigning sleep at the end of the sexual act when he was interrupted. And he, that the speculation is important because it occurs at a critical portion of the military judge's analysis. This is when he explained his reasonable doubt. The speculation enables the silent assessment the military judge did earlier to remain viable. Because with the speculation, the complainant is not unconscious at the end. She's feigning sleep. Therefore, the pause, the silences during the video and as well our incapacity or unconsciousness or sleepness that occurred just before the video is not such that she was, she fell again unconscious. No, it is there and she has the mental capacity to feign sleep in the end. So she had subjective capacity throughout. It is, it is, so that the speculation is, is critical. But it was not a finding of feigned sleep. It was simply a hypothesis that provided, um, as the trial judge said, uh, it's a hypothesis that I simply cannot dismiss. That's quite different from a finding. But it, Justice Moore, it's, a, it's a, an hypothesis he cannot dismiss when he explains his reasonable doubt. It's an hypothesis that, that enables him to ex, you know, live with his reasonable doubt. Without the speculation, if we remove the speculation, what we have left on the record is that the complainant was unconscious when she was brought to her room. She fell unconscious during the sexual act, despite sexual stimulation, and she remained unconscious despite all of the commotion in her room, and during that commotion, she made the same vocalization separated by silences that are heard in the video when we don't know if she's conscious or not. That's what we're left with. We're left with the accused that- Sorry, I, that, is that finding in the judge's reasons? That she was making the same um, kind of vocalizations during the commotion in the room? Yes, yes, Justice It's there? Okay. It is there. And can you point it to me? Point me to it? Um, yes, Justice Kerak Um I think I may have this in the fact in the paragraph 87, but I will double check. That's okay, I'll find it. Don't, that's fine. And, uh, Perhaps is, the reference said 89 sub H. <clears throat> 88 uh, sub H, that's correct. Uh, I see that my time is running out uh, slowly, but I, I will just make a few observations on the mens rea. So taking in point that the speculation is acknowledged by both the majority and, and the minority of the Court of Appeal. So it is not in dispute. The only concern for this court is with the impact of the speculation on the verdict. Accepting that if we remove the speculation, what we're left with, we have the accused own acknowledgement multiple times in his witness statement that the complainant was passed out or unconscious at the end. So we have an actus reus that is crystallized. And we have a military judge that, that explained his reasonable doubt on basis of, of that speculation that, that is removed. So when the military judge looks at the mens rea and when the majority do it, they both do it Im improperly. They look only at actual knowledge. There is no actual assessment of recklessness and willful blindness. Both of these legal concepts are only addressed in boilerplate fashion. 
in the mens rea analysis. There is no analysis. Given the accused's own evidence in this matter, the mens rea assessment required at a minimum the consideration that the, the accused assessment that the complainant was a nine closer to 10 on a scale of intoxication, the accused observation that the complainant had to be dragged to her room and put to her in her bed, the accused expressed concern with being left alone with the complainant and his decision to nevertheless do so. The accused decision not to consider that the complainant's eyes were not fully awake, just barely awake when she provided those answers. And the fact that he alone removed the complainant's pants while she remains motionless, contrary to his caution statement. When considered holistically, all of this evidence reveals that the accused was fully alert to the risk and nevertheless persisted. And as Justice McVeigh noted for the dissent at the Court of Appeal, it reveals the accused actions were the very definition of recklessness. In conclusion, the assessment of the reasons against the backdrop of all of the evidence considered indicates the assessment of the video and the credibility assessment of the witnesses were not cumulative and that the military judge speculated. These errors affected both the actus reus and the mens rea analysis. They affected the analysis of capacity and they affected the assessment of the accused's frame of mind. These errors can reasonably be thought to have affected the integrity of the verdict. Thank you very much. We invite this court to allow this appeal. Thank you. Ferguson. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. This remains today an unreasonable acquittal appeal. The trial judge never made a finding of incapacity, nor did he find the complainant to be unconscious at any time during the sexual act. As a result, in order to overturn this acquittal, this court would necessarily have to make new findings of fact, reweigh the evidence, and question the reasonableness of the trial judge's decision. And pursuant to this court's decision in JMH, an appellate court is not able to do those things in the context of a Crown appeal of an acquittal. Now, before I provide an overview of my submissions that I'm going to give to you today, I want to note what jumped out at me from my friend's submissions, which is this gap that my friend describes from paragraph 88 discussing the indicia of significant intoxication and then the trial judge's ultimate conclusion. And that gap is that the, tr that the prosecution was not able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the transition from evidence of significant intoxication to evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of incapacity. The two do not automatically equate. That so gap needed to be filled. Talking about gaps though, where in paragraph 88 does he list the information as discussed by your friend with regard to Vu's statement to police? It's nowhere in there. Well, he, do, he and, does acknowledge it. Just, just a second, and it, it just, it's telling because it talks significantly about uh, the different levels of incap incapacitation or intoxication, I should say, with regards to himself and to SB. It's mostly a list of evidence of significant intoxication, and he draws from all sources in that list without referencing exactly which source. We see their evidence from Stanitz and LeBlanc, like that her eyes were closed when she was laid in her bed or that she fell off a chair. We have the evidence of her being carried to her room that would have come from Private Vu's statement as well as other sources. He was not required to list everything that Private Vu said in his statement in that list. However, it's clear from Private Vu's statement as well, I, I'll take a brief moment to note that the dissenting judge's reasons, she takes that statement and she does weigh it a bit differently because she looks at the number of times that Private Vu repeats over and over again that he saw her passed out, but all of those references, it's just, the, it's just the repetition of the exact same fact over and over again, which is that he only saw her 
looking, appearing to be, eyes closed, appearing to be asleep or passed out at the end after the sexual activity had concluded. So there's not actually that much more that could have been gleaned from Private Booth's statement, but, but what, what was needed was there in paragraph 88. That is a, a summary of all of the evidence of significant intoxication. It's just not evidence that the trial judge was able to find was enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt evidence of incapacity. <clears throat> so first today I will argue that the trial judge did consider the evidence as a whole in coming to his ultimate conclusion and that his cumulative review of the evidence is seen between paragraphs 88 and 96 of his decision. And in terms of the two witnesses, Stanitz and LeBlanc, he was entitled to reject their evidence. And, he, and however, he did still, while not being required to do so, does consider their evidence in paragraph 88. Second, my friend did not address the issue of corroboration in his submission, so I'll just say very briefly that corroboration is not an issue here. Uh, and that's because the complainant did not give any evidence during the time uh, to speak to her state during the time of the sexual activity. Therefore, even though he found her credible and believed her for the evidence she could offer, for the time of the sexual activity, she had no evidence to offer and therefore no evidence to be corroborated. <clears throat> Third, I will argue the trial judge did not engage in speculation. Indeed, he did not find that the complainant did feign sleep only that it was a possible hypothesis given that she was conscious and responsive only seconds prior. Finally, mens rea was not addressed in our factum, but was the topic of discussion briefly from my friend today. So I'll clarify my position on mens rea, which is that this court should adopt the CMAC majority's reasons at paragraphs 30 and 31 of their decision. So in terms of whether or not the trial judge considered the evidence as a whole, I don't wish to belabor this point today, except to say that it is very clear in paragraphs 88 and 89 that the trial judge does consider the evidence as a whole, even considering evidence of the witnesses whose evidence he more or less rejected. What's important about his cumulative assessment of the evidence is the way that he circles back to that evidence of significant intoxication at paragraph 96. So it's not just that he lists it and moves on. He comes back after his finding that he could not be satisfied that incapacity was proved beyond a reasonable doubt to say, I am considering this even in light of the evidence that she was clearly significantly intoxicated. He was still simply left in doubt about incapacity. The CMAC majority confirmed that he considered the whole of the evidence in their decision at paragraph 28. <clears throat> they noted that the trial judge was keenly aware of the importance of Private Booth's statement. However, it was not up to them to weigh it differently. Now, I do wish to comment on two errors that we see in the dissenting judge's reasons. The first one being what I already referred to at the outset, which is the way that she treats Private Booth's statement as saying there's 12 different assertions that he saw her passed out. There's, there's one fact that he found her passed out when he looked up at the end of the sexual activity, whether he repeats that once or a hundred times, it's one fact. And the repetition of it in his statement does not make it more reliable, it does not make it more probative, it does not give it more weight. It's, it's one finding of fact that the trial judge was alive to. Another error from the dissenting judge's reasons that I will note is that she relies quite heavily on the case of R versus Muse. This is a Nova Scotia Court of Appeal decision to support her position that there was a siloing of the evidence and she does likely very honestly but erroneously rely on the dissenting reasons of that decision. The majority in Muse actually found the trial judge committed no such error of siloing the evidence. And certainly Muse and the underlying facts of this court's decision in JMH are both great examples of decisions and, and JMH I'll remind you the underlying facts were a trial judge reviewing portions of a poem that there's nothing wrong with identifying specific pieces of evidence that raise a reasonable doubt. As long as it's clear it's considered in the context of the rest of the evidence, there's nothing wrong with drawing attention to the specific pieces of evidence that raise that reasonable doubt. As long as it's specific uh, pieces of evidence. Um, there's a comment even in the Court of Appeal that the trial judge here engaged in speculation um, in terms of what her possible conduct was when the others came into the room and he attributed that. He said he couldn't, 
he couldn't take out of the equation that it might have been a feigning of, of sleep. So um, I just want to ask you, if we think that's a problem yes. um, and, and it's removed, um, and it ought not to have formed part of the reasoning, where are we left then on the trial judge's overall assessment that in light of all the evidence, he still had a reasonable doubt as to whether or not she had the capacity to consent? Yes, Justice Martin, my submission is that if you carve that out entirely, that feigned sleep comment, you're still left with the fact that the trial judge could not find anything other than that she was conscious and responsive until seconds before the door opened. And the CMAT majority, while not condoning the comment about, spec uh, a comment about feigning sleep, did also find that based on those sounds and movements coming from her right up until seconds before the door opened, that they even find in paragraph 28 of their decision, it was questionable that she was unconscious even at that point. So if we carve off the feigning sleep comment, what we are left with is that the trial judge still could not find beyond a reasonable doubt that she was unconscious during the sexual activity. Whether or not she was unconscious later is a separate question, but then that, that raises the question of, what, first of all, was she unconscious during the sexual activity? The evidence does not prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. And even if it did, when? And obviously, if it was at any time during the sexual activity, uh, this court would still need to go through the mens rea issue, which the trial judge uh, did, our submission as a trial judge did the mens rea analysis properly, and that was upheld by the CMAC majority as well. So there's no effect but on is the there a, is there an error about the law about incapacity when um, the focus is on being able to make sounds or move body parts? There's no error. I, I, that's not the only uh, part of his analysis. That's part of his analysis. So he does do a quite holistic view of her uh, evidence of capacity when he looks at, for example, he's quite careful to say, I'm not looking at how many times she said yes, but I am listening to how responsive she is to the question and answer that he poses the question and she responds immediately. That's something that he factored in quite heavily in his decision. He does also consider sounds and movements she's making throughout the video to show that there's no evident or obvious change of state from how her state was assessed at the outset of the video, both by the trial judge in reviewing the video and also considering what Private Boo had to say about her state at the beginning of the video. Because he's quite clear when he talks to the police, he's a bit, you know, he's a very honest young man in his statement to police when he says, you know, she was, the words are relaxed awake in terms of her eyes, she's relaxed awake, uh, but she's, she's giving me responses, she's answering me, she's awake, I believed that she was okay. But he kept on repeating his questions and her answers, uh, I mean, there's another interpretation of that yeah. video, clearly, in terms of, of uh, the responses. I, I take your point that there were responses to questions, yep. but the responses themselves could be placed in an equivocal basket. They, they could, but this is where we defer to trial judges. This is where I'm inviting this court to defer to trial judges, is that there were multiple interpretations based on this video. There's no question about that. In fact, the Chief Justice of the CMAC said exactly that. At the hearing, he said, you know, there's three judges here, we all have different opinions of the video. And if it goes up, you'll have, in this case, seven different opinions of the video. Is this not why we defer to trial judges? It's exactly why we defer to trial judges, because there was more than one interpretation of the evidence. In terms of Private Vu specifically asking multiple times, it, it appears, if you look at his whole statement, it appears he really does believe at a certain point he's getting valid yeses. He says, I, I wanted to make sure it wasn't just drunken, drunken slurs. One yes could have been a drunken slur. So I had to keep asking to make sure it was a real yes. And even if another person might step back and say, I don't know, maybe, maybe they, they would interpret it differently, Private Vu clearly believes that they're valid yeses, and certainly the trial judge had a reasonable doubt about whether they were not. Certainly the burden was on the Crown to prove incapacity. And given this evidence, it was not capable of being proven beyond a reasonable doubt with those affirmative answers. <clears throat> now, in terms of the witnesses, uh, Stanitz and LeBlanc, being found to be unreliable and lacking credibility, my submission to you today is simply that a trial judge can accept some, all, or none of a witness's evidence, as per this court's decision in WD, and that determination is not the proper subject of appellate review in the context of an acquittal. And indeed, the appellant in their factum, in this section of their factum, 
when they're addressing the cumulative assessment of the credibility of the witnesses. They're citing all cases that were appeals of convictions, not of acquittals. There is a difference. In an appeal of a conviction, there is a wider lane to look at how a trial judge may have assessed the credibility of a witness, but credibility of a witness is a factual finding, and in the context of a Crown appeal of an acquittal, we are limited to questions of law alone. So the credibility analysis of the witnesses must stand in this case. And, and it cuts all ways. We're not entitled to stand here and ask you to reassess you know, the way that uh, the trial judge assessed SB's credibility, for example. The credibility, standings in this, uh, credibility findings in this case must stand. <clears throat> now, the next note in my submissions is didn't, to come uh, back. Didn't the trial judge really accept, though, um, the evidence of the witnesses on the significant issue that the complainant was significantly intoxicated. She was significantly impaired by alcohol. Absolutely. That is the, that is the, so I don't think he disregarded all their evidence. I mean, he sets that out in paragraph 88. Um, so on that issue, he clearly accepted, yes, they're right. Now it's a judgment for me as the trial judge to say, is there, has the prosecution met its burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt? So I don't think, you know, much is made of the, the other three witnesses, but I think he actually accepted the material part. Abs uh, absolutely. He, he accepted the degree to which uh, their evidence was, uh, for the most part, they were corroborated by, by Private Vu himself. You know, the way they that they carried her to her room, uh, the fact that she had consumed alcohol, the fact that uh, her eyes were closed when the door was open at the end. There's, there's lots of facts that are accepted from Stanitz and LeBlanc, and, and also a few additional facts that aren't corroborated by Private Vu, like falling off the chair, like her eyes being closed when she's laid in bed. So he is, there's no question that the trial judge found her to be significantly intoxicated. That is absolutely not an issue today. The trial judge found she was significantly intoxicated, and all the evidence pointed in that direction. And certainly even Stanitz and LeBlanc corroborated that. There, were some there was some degree which the trial judge appeared to have an issue with how much they may have exaggerated the specifics of that. Uh, we see throughout the decision issues with uh, there's a bathroom stop that he doesn't talk about because it only comes from them and it sounded like it was poor evidence in his opinion and so that doesn't make part of the list because it's not corroborated and it sounds like he did not believe them. And uh, another example, my friend says that uh, the trial judge found she was unconscious when she was put in her bed. That's not a finding that the trial judge made. Uh, if you look at the reasons, that doesn't really show up as a clear finding of fact. And my submission is because that only came from those two witnesses and their evidence was largely rejected. So there's some, there's some degree to which he's cautious with their evidence, but on the question of significant intoxication, they're corroborated, their, their evidence on that is accepted, and it's, it's not a contentious issue here today. I'm not gonna stand here and tell you she wasn't extremely intoxicated on that night. The yeah. issue is, did the Crown prove the link to incapacity? And based on the evidence in the video, as well as some of the other evidence from the witnesses, the Crown could not. Just wanna be clear about your position on the comment at paragraph 97 that per, just speculating perhaps she was feigning sleep. And I, um, is it your submission that that uh, was not improper or that it was improper but at the end of the day um, has no bearing on the conclusions reached? <clears throat> well, an important point, and I, I agree completely with Justice Moreau's comment from earlier uh, addressing whether or not it really was a finding. Uh, my submission is that it was not an actual finding. He didn't find that she was feigning sleep. He simply found that the prosecution was not able to prove that the only reasonable inference was that she was unconscious when the door opened. And my submission to you is he never would have gone there if it wasn't for the fact that there's evidence of her being conscious and responsive seconds before the door opens. So he's rooting this hypothesis in evidence on the record. He's not, he's not sort of making this up. He's not just filling a gap somewhere. He's saying there's evidence on the record to tell me she's conscious and responsive right up until the door opens. So in terms of her state of consciousness or capacity after that point, he clearly had some questions. And the CMAC majority also said it was questionable. So for the trial judge to say there's alternative hypotheses here that might be true based on this evidence, that was not erroneous. Are the words feigning sleep ideal? Maybe not. But there's no error here. But I do also rely on my submission made earlier that if this court disagrees with me and that there's an error in how far he went, in that hypothesis, 
you can carve that off and nothing changes about the decision. He still was not able to find beyond a reasonable doubt that she was unconscious or incapacitated during the sexual activity, which is the time that matters. <coughs> now, <coughs> I do want to just flush out my comments on mens rea before I conclude today, uh, given that my friend raised mens rea. And I want to address a couple of facts on the record uh, that demonstrate that Private Vu was not reckless or willfully blind, nor did he have actual knowledge, if, for example, this court were to find that she may have fallen asleep for some seconds at the end of the video, which is, to be clear, the period of time we're dealing with. The trial judge did no assessment of mens rea for the entire duration of the video, and we're not asking this court to consider anything like that. There's this brief period at the end of the video where there may have been a change in her state, where there may have been uh, a ceasing of her ability to continue giving ongoing cons consent. And for that, there's three critical facts on the record that show Private Vu believed that she was capable of giving consent and was conscious until he looked up and the sexual activity concluded. The first is, I will come back to the fact that he asked her several times. And in the context of mens rea, I'll be clear, it doesn't need to be a, a reasonable you know, subjective state of mind of, of Private Boo, just honestly held. He asks her eight times if she's saying yes. He says, I wanted to make sure it wasn't just junk, drunken slurs, that she was actually saying yes. And it's clear he gets to the point where he's satisfied in her ability to give genuine consent. He then starts the sexual activity, and we see him check in with her about halfway through, where he asks if she's happy with what's happening or words to that effect, and she moans immediately in response. And the trial judge makes that finding, in fact, that she moans in response to that question. So he's checking in with her. He's making sure that he's satisfying himself that she's still okay. The third fact is that when the door is opened and Aviator Stanitz walks in, he has this very nonchalant reply. It's almost to the effect of like, hey, you're interrupting us. He doesn't hustle to hide anything or have a panic when she walks in to, to make sure he's not seen doing what he's doing. He, he clearly thinks everything's fine and only seems to understand that, that the people walking in have a problem when there's yelling and he's being thrown out of the room. Uh, but his nonchalant response is evidence of his subjective state of mind in this moment. Everything's fine. She's fine. Uh, and again, I say it's, it's not, even if this court were to look and say that you would consider her state differently at that time, the question is, did he honestly, subjectively think things were fine? And, and it's clear from the evidence on the record he did. And I would hearken back to this court's decision in Zora, Justice Martin, your, decision, your reasons in Zora, which is a, a 2020 decision where this court said recklessness is not and should not, through misapplication, become the same as negligence. And the purpose of that comment is to say it's a subjective assessment. What did the person believe in their mind? Not what would a reasonable person think in the circumstances. Certainly, Private Vu is not winning any awards for excellent judgment on that night for, for various reasons. But our submission... He missed out on the Sir Galahad Award by a wide margin. I'm sorry? It was, a, it was just a comment. He missed out on the Sir Galahad Award by a wide margin. Right, yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed, but, and, and I understand that, you know, there was a question about the, the moral grounds, and our position remains that, and, and I don't agree necessarily with the appellant's submission that the moral concern was simply if a crime had been committed or not. There was actually a distinction between the two. The CMAC majority and the trial judge said, you know, we have some uh, concerns about the behavior. They had some comments, but they instructed themselves on the importance of focusing on whether or not a crime had been committed. And in circumstances where a trial judge is feeling a sensation of disgust or reprehension from the evidence they're reviewing, sometimes that self-instruction may be helpful. And in this case, it was helpful for the CMAC majority and for the trial judge. I'm not sure the dissenting judge followed the same self-instruction. But the concern seems to be more with the fact that they were, they had just met, that she was intoxicated, uh, and that they were, uh, that he was engaging in sexual activity with somebody, and, and also certainly the video recording. But none of those are relevant to the question of whether or not Private Vu committed a sexual assault on that day, and as a result, are not helpful. <clears throat> so just a few concluding remarks. The trial judge's analysis was thorough, if not painstaking, the trial judge made no findings of incapacity, 
He made no findings of unconsciousness during the sexual activity, and he did not find the witnesses uh, for the Crown to be reliable or credible in the cases of Stanitz and LeBlanc. In, over to, in order to overturn this acquittal, you would need to make new findings of fact and reweigh the evidence. <clears throat> and certainly in a Crown appeal of an acquittal, that is not permitted. Subject to any further questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Reply. <clears throat> my friend mentioned that the trial judge accepted the evidence, but in fact, he did not accept the evidence, neither of the complainant or most of the witnesses. He tempered with that evidence, <clears throat> and he speculated on it. The video is at best ambiguous, and the military judge had to use the other evidence that was before him in order to remove that ambiguity in the video. He did not do so in his assessment of the video. My friend mentioned that it was open to the accused to believe the answer yes he received. In doing so, to some degree, she admitted to the actus reus. The question of whether or not the accused were entitled to believe the yes was not pertinent to the question of the actus reus. This was, again, a question for the mens rea, whether or not he had an honest but mistaken belief in communicated consent. The fact that the sexual act was interrupted seconds within the portion of unconsciousness at the end is irrelevant to the actus reus. This is when the sexual act was interrupted. It crystallizes then. Whether or not we have crystal evidence that it was during the entire duration or not, or seconds of it, is irrelevant for the actus reus. It crystallizes, and the analysis needs to move to a proper mens rea analysis. These are all additional submissions. I would ask counsel to remain at our disposal. Thank you. Please be seated. So I'd like to thank counsel for your submissions. The court is ready to release its decision. <coughs> The respondent was acquitted of sexual assault before the court-martial. The Crown appealed, arguing that the military judge failed to consider all of the evidence cumulatively and assess the evidence on the wrong legal principles. The majority of the court-martial appeal court dismissed the Crown's appeal. Justice McVeigh, in dissent, would have allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial. The Crown appeals to this court as of right. A majority of the court is of the view that the appeal should be dismissed substantially for the reasons of the majority of the court-martial appeal court. The military judge's assessment of the evidence was thorough and cumulative. Reading the judgment as a whole, the military judge did not adopt a piecemeal or narrow approach to the evidence. In addition, we are not persuaded that the military judge applied the wrong legal principles. While we agree with all the justices of the court martial and appeal court that the military judge engaged in some improper speculation we share the majority's view that these comments did not undermine the military judge's fundamental findings. For her part, Justice Obonsawin 
would allow the appeal for the reasons of Justice McVeigh at paragraph 39 to 90 and paragraph 119 to 126. Therefore, the appeal is dismissed.